This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books like Mary Roach's new book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, and Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel Laureate Daniel Kahneman. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash cyan. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on June 27th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... I mean, typically when we have brain damage, uh, we have this effect where it essentially sort of waters down our sex drive. But there are certain uh, neurological disorders that have the opposite effects. It makes us very randy. It makes us uh, hypersexual. And that is scientist and author Jesse Baring. He's a psychologist and the former director of the Institute of Cognition and Culture at Queen's University, Belfast. He now lives and writes in Ithaca in upstate New York, but swung through New York City last summer on a tour for his then-new book, Why is the Penis Shaped Like That?, and other reflections on being human. The discussion that follows is at times frank and, let's call it, earthy. So if you have sensitive sensibilities, turn back now. Jesse and I spoke at Scientific American. Jesse, I, I'm holding the book here, and as you can see, I have a piece of paper covering the cover. I see that. Because I was reading it on the subway, and uh, why... Oh, you're, is, you're ashamed of it? I wasn't ashamed. <laughs> I was just figuring why bother to get into it. You're cautious. I was cautious. Yes. Why is the penis shaped like that and other reflections on being human with two... Now, these would appear to the lay observer to be walnuts, but... We both know that they represent the prostate. Uh, yes, I think that was the intention, It's a sort of double entendre. Because you cannot see an article about the prostate without it being referred to as the walnut-sized organ or yes, the walnut-sized yes, gland, yes. right. Yes, but it's innocuous enough, I think. Exactly. And there are two of them. It, although it is a little uncomfortable, actually, when you put it in that context and you see the close-up images of the walnuts, that are sort of the outer shell. Um, it looks quite scrotal. It it definitely does. It definitely does. Uh, although this would be uh, much more likely to survive some of the impacts just that a bit, you discuss yeah, just a bit in the book. Well, the, the book is wide ranging. It's uh, very entertaining. You know, you have a a really engaging style, and um, the information in it seems to be very well cited scientifically. So mm-hmm. you're you're not just, uh, you It's know, not me pontificating. I mean, exactly. this, this is actual science that I'm, I'm referring to, yes. So, um, you know, why don't we, we'll, we'll talk about a few of the specifics in sure. the book. But, uh, since the title is Why is the Penis Shaped Like That? Why don't right. you give us the nickel tour of the penis and why it is shaped like that? So, um, it was, it's a, you know, this is the titular essay in the, in the collection and, um. Let's stick to the penis. Yeah, let's stick to, we'll stick to the penis for a while. Um, so it is a curious, uh, appendage. I mean, if you think about it, it's not intuitively shaped. Uh, uh, there's no obvious reason in the absence of some sort of evolutionary theory that it should look the way that it actually does. And it does look very different from the peens. It's the plural of penises, I've learned, uh, of other primate species, other closely related primate species, including chimpanzees. Um, and unfortunately, I, I saw too many chimpanzee penises as a graduate student when I was doing work with them. Um, didn't really want to see them, but I couldn't help but notice 
them. <laughs> but uh, uh, the the human penis is distinct in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, it's very big. Uh, it's large from sort of the, an animal kingdom sort of broader perspective. Um, so that's one telling sign. That's quite revealing. Um, it also has that very distinctive uh, glands head uh, with a fairly, you know, noticeable uh, coronal ridge, it's called, which is sort of the umbrella lip underneath the glands. Uh, and this is a, an erect penis we're talking about when we're actually tumescent. Um, and the, you know, what was really interesting to me was that nobody had ever, you know, bothered until very recently to stop and consider why it looks the way that it actually does. It took um, an evolutionary psychologist named Gordon Gallup, who I'm very fond of, and I think he's a very innovative theorist, um, has a number uh, of uh, arguments that I find increase, uh, incredibly persuasive, if speculative. Uh, so we're talking about the Gallup poll, literally. I don't, yes, literally. Um, and the the argument, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, that's kind of hard to avoid these puns with this type of uh, conversation, is that uh, the penis evolved this particular morphology to retract the um, the semen of and the sperm cells, obviously in particular of uh, males that had copulated with a particular female um, within a certain window of time before you're having sex with her. And so. this is not uncommon. I mean, many uh, animals, uh, insects have equipment that sweeps out the, specialized to right. yes, yes. Um, so yeah, I talk in the book about other, you know, there's some other species that have similarly shaped, um, male genitalia to, to, to basically, uh, to sweep out or to retract the, uh, sperm cells of, of, of other males. It's all sperm competition. I mean, that's the heart of the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's got so many, I mean, Gordon's got so many sort of interesting little caveats that are part of the argument. So, um, you know, uh, you know, one, one counter, uh, point perhaps would be, well, you know, uh, if that were true, why would we, you know, it's kind of self-defeating. We're pulling out our own semen too. But um, anybody with a penis has, knows that that's that actually ejaculated, knows that you actually get quite flaccid uh, uh, very quickly after uh, you achieve an orgasm. Um, and, you know, further stimulation is quite, uh, it's not painful, but it's not necessarily pleasant. It's it's, it's almost uh, uncomfortable. Um, and there's a period of um, uh, impotence for, you know, about at least an hour or so, up to 24 hours uh, after ejaculation. So there seem to be these built-in mechanisms that facilitate um, you, ejacula- you ejaculating your sperm cells as deep into the vaginal canal as possible um, and then stopping. <laughs> uh, so... Um, that's, I mean, that's the gist of his hypothesis. And of course, he's got all these really great, uh, experiments where he, he looks at, um, he, he's used different shaped phalluses, uh, um, dildos basically, uh, that have more or less prominent, uh, uh, coronal ridges. And, uh, you know, he, there's this, he, he actually has a, a, a um, a set of ingredients for producing artificial semen <laughs> so he can, uh, literally sort of detect the amount of, of semen that would be retracted by differently shaped uh, coronal ridges. Um, and as you can imagine, a, a, a dildo or a phallus that has no gland head that's simply straight uh, is not very effective at pulling out uh, uh, semen. That must have been a fascinating grant proposal to write. Yeah. Um, you know, evolutionary psychologists are, they, they, they do some really interesting work. And I, and I, and I know, um, you know, just speaking to my colleagues and some uh, studies that I've done myself, actually, it, it is, it does take some, um, argumentation to persuade an ethics review board that, uh, this is 
this is important work, theoretically meaningful work, uh, even though it has this sort of intrinsic giggle factor associated with it. You have the the, the book, as I say, is far ranging, uh, but um, just l- let's just sort of uh, pick a few sections to talk sure. about. There, one of the things I found really uh, fascinating was the chapter on brain damage and how that can have right. a profound effect on people's sexuality. Right. Right. So, uh, I mean, typically when we have brain damage, uh, we have this effect where it, it essentially sort of waters down our sex drive. It decreases our libido. But there are certain uh, neurological disorders uh, and uh, insults to the brain that are localized in particular regions that uh, have the opposite effects. It makes us very randy. It makes us uh, hypersexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and the There's re- an episode of House, actually. Yeah, somebody's a, told me about that. I yeah, didn't see the episode, but I, somebody's A woman is that. just completely, an elderly woman is completely uh, sexualized, and she's she's just after everybody, and he finds that she has suffered some brain damage, right. but she's enjoying herself, right. so they're not going to fix it. Okay. Well, it depends on what she's doing, I suppose. Right, she's not, right, exactly. She's not Breaking actually, the law or right. something like that. So, but those are the cases where, I mean, you actually have some type of um, social transgression where somebody with um, some pronounced hypersexuality that results from brain damage commits a crime, a sexual crime. And um, it's very difficult, I think, for people to um, not attribute responsibility to them as making a decision to do that. So sexuality in the moral domain, I think, is very interesting because um, we don't it's it's sort of the, the one domain where people like to think we're in control over our decision making. But, uh, you know, I talk about in this chapter that you're referring to a woman that was diagnosed with Kluver Busey syndrome, which is a, a notorious um, uh, brain disorder where hypersexuality results. And this woman was actually quite prudish, you know, in her you know, prior to actually being afflicted with this disorder, um, very reserved and quiet, uh, middle aged woman. But all of a sudden, now that she has this, she's. Um, you know, she's soliciting her family members. She's, uh, they brought her to the emergency room. She's performing fellatio on an elderly man in the, uh, in the waiting room. Um, and it's, uh, strange, I think, for us to, you know, get our heads around the fact that she can't help what she's doing. I mean, and it really does sort of solidify to me the, um, the physicality of, uh, of our decision making and our free will is, you know, in my opinion, at least, uh, free will is, is largely an illusion. Um, everything, if you look deeply enough, is uh, has some sort of physical causal mechanism. Um, and uh, but it, like I said, it, there's a sort of tension when we're thinking about truly disturbing sort of uh, sexual crimes and those types of things. Mm-hmm. You talk in that chapter about a guy who has a brain tumor and he's behaving really inappropriately sexually, and they deal with the tumor. And by all accounts, he returns to normal. Right, right. Then the tumor comes back. His behavior gets bad again. Right. And then again, by all accounts, when they deal with it again, he again returns to normal. Right. So there are a couple of cases where there's a, a brain lesion and uh, and uh, and there's what's known as new onset pedophilia, for example. I think that's the case that you're talking about mm-hmm. where he's, you know, he's probably, I think he was coming on to his 12-year-old stepdaughter right. sort of uh, um, doing very inappropriate things. He had the brain tumor removed and everything was back to normal. They, you know, he was back with his wife, the daughter was living, then the brain tumor came back and again he was doing appropriate things. So the, um, I guess one of the mysteries is whether or not, for example, in that case, he really did have some implicit, some latent pedophilic tendencies and the brain lesion somehow uh, affected his uh, inhibition 
Um, it's not qualitatively a new uh, sort of new onset pedophilia out of nowhere. It's that the brain lesion somehow disrupted his ability to control himself normally. Um, and those are the types of issues that I think researchers are still grappling with in terms of uh, whether, uh, you know, there, and there and that's one case. There, there are several of these new onset pedophilia uh, cases, but there are also cases where somebody all of a sudden just becomes a transsexual or, or transvestite mm-hmm. um, or, uh, you know, they become bisexual or homosexual when, you know, normally they're heterosexual. Uh, so then the, the big question again is, you know, are they, were they always homosexual at some level or were they always bisexual and somehow the brain uh, tumor or lesion uh, somehow just flushed it out or, or, or uh, uh, made it more explicit rather than changed it qualitatively? And you do see uh, other behavioral, massive behavioral changes. People might get more irritable. You also see people whose political affiliations yes, completely yes. reverse right. after a brain lesion. Right, right. So a lot of very interesting and unusual things right, right. can happen. Um, you you talk uh, – let's, let's get back to the scrotum for a second. Sure, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> because you talk in the book about the, the amazing pain yes, that's, that's <laughs> available for men. Everybody has been, you know, kicked – in the groin, unfortunately, or, yeah. Or uh, you know, uh, I'll I'll tell you when I was a paper boy many years ago, I used to hop the fences between the houses if they had adjoining front porches. So save me a trip down. I hear, I hear a, pain, a painful story coming. Well, up. you know, I I slipped once and mm. came down right on the rail from you know just from a couple of inches. Right. right. And every, I mean, I I have not given up. Rail hopping right. in my uh, in my dotage here, but I do it exceptionally carefully right, whenever right. I do it now yes. because that pain was just you know right. mind boggling. Right. So why what why would evolution have constructed? Clearly, it didn't have the pain in mind. What what's well, going it, it on wasn't there? anticipatory. I mean, right. in a sense of natural selection, sort of. Uh, right. But but it worked. And uh, this is again another. This is an, another extension of Gordon Gallup's model of male genitalia, that the degree of pain that we experience with any given uh, organ in our bodies or appendage or uh, any part of your body um, that's protruding is directly related to its um, reproductive significance, uh, its importance from a genetic fitness perspective. So, um, you know, the, the, the testicles, it, it's slightly counterintuitive that they would be, uh, you know, basically out of our body in a very thin sort of satchel that are so imminently vulnerable to assault or damage. Uh, and uh, the hypothesis is that uh, as a consequence of that, and, there, and, and, you know, natural selection sort of, as you know, works with what it has. And because we uh, produce sperm cells um, uh, more prodigiously when the temperature, the, the, the ambient body temperature is a certain way outside of the body and slightly cool, um, there was a selective pressure or force for that, to, for the uh, testicles to, to be outside of the body. Uh, but as a consequence of that, they're in danger. Um, so uh, by by having these very painful encounters developmentally uh, to our, our scrotums or, or testicles uh, and learning very quickly from them and, and how to handle them essentially when we're interacting in the environment, uh, we are much more likely to... Uh, uh, protect them and therefore keep them healthy and uh, live to long enough at least to uh, actually use them effectively and reproduce ourselves. Yes, you, you could have uh, almost used as a cover illustration 
soccer players awaiting right. a uh, covering their groins. Right, exactly. Yeah. All lined up with their hands over their groins. Yes. Um, you talk in the book uh, also about cannibalism and mm-hmm. how it would appear to be uh, a, an evolutionary strategy, which has always struck me as just being almost expected mm. because organisms don't like to let protein go to waste right. uh, because of some kind of uh, uh, cultural right. uh, imperative. Right. So, um, so again, so there's this evolutionary hypothesis that cannibalism um, is not so exotic or foreign to our species that, in fact, uh, ancestrally there would have been numerous occasions where um, it would have been biologically adaptive to eat the meat of uh, other human beings. Uh, and there's, like you said, there's quite a bit of protein in the human body. I, I think uh, that somebody, you know, at some point, the, some anthropologists had crunched the numbers and it was, you know, 44 pounds of... I think it was a lot more than that, actually. I can't, it's, some, it's quite it a bit of meat. It was 70, if I remember. 66 pounds, I don't I know, some double figures. Yeah. Okay, so it was quite a lot of meat uh, um, that would otherwise simply go to waste. Um, so... You know, starvation conditions would have been very prevalent uh, historically, uh, both after uh, we became, you know, both before we were sedentary and afterward uh, with famines and droughts and uh, all all sorts of um, dietary uh, problems that we would have historically run into quite frequently. Um, And there there are certain physiological cues uh, or or, uh, evidence left in uh, the human body that suggests that we might, in fact, have specific adaptations to um, prevent uh, uh, parasitical uh, or microbiological uh, you know, microorganisms from somehow making us sick by eating uh, other human beings' flesh. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just one of, you know, uh, Millions of species that have, you know, walked and flown and swam in, in the earth, and uh, many of them do engage in cannibalism from from time to time. Uh, and even their own offspring. Even their own offspring, you know, especially if it, it's sickly offspring, and uh, you know they need us for some source of protein or something like that. And um, and you know we find it in primate species that are trying to make make room for more, you know, that that eat their sickly infants uh, that aren't likely to survive anyway. Um, it's disturbing. It's gross, but you know it is what it is. It's nature. Uh, we're not uh, we're not advocating it, by the way. No, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it's just pointing out that it's. Uh, Although probably, apparently it does taste quite good. I mean, certain parts. Of the that's, body, yeah. that's what they yeah, say. That's what they say. The, the epicures say that. Yeah, sixty-six pounds. Sixty-six of edible pounds, food, okay. including fat, connective tissue, muscle, organs, blood, and skin. Protein-rich blood clots and marrow are said by the rare connoisseur to be special treats. Yes, yes. Let's talk about uh, this gorilla that you you tickled his toe. Mm, King. Now, yes. how do you wind up in, Tickling in physical contact with oh, a gorilla? Okay. Yeah. Well, this was when I was um, an, an undergraduate student in Florida. I, When I was in high school, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I was completely clueless. wasn't particularly scientifically oriented. Um, I... Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't a, a very good student. I had very little interest in school. Nothing really appealed to me. But when I, when I moved to Florida, uh, when I was 18 years old, there was, a, uh, an article in the Miami Herald about a woman that ran a sanctuary, 
and Parrot Jungle, which is a sort of theme park mm-hmm. in Parrot Jungle. And she was, uh, uh, she was, uh, um, raising infant orangutans and chimpanzees at that point. And, uh, um, and they were, she was selling, uh, paintings that they would paint. She was trying to make, uh, 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 collect money to create a proper sanctuary for them where they wouldn't actually be exposed to the public and it wasn't, and they could sort of lead natural lives and, um, among other, uh, others of their kind. Um, and I got it, I got sucked into the sort of great ape, uh, sanctuary world. And, uh, so you I, are a great ape yourself. I am, yeah, technically right. we are, you know, Jared Diamond would say we're the third chimpanzee. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what really appealed to me. I, I finally found, uh, you know, evolutionary theory to me was, you know, was biblical in the sense of really sort of hitting me and, and being so meaningful and transforming uh, all the sort of doubts that I had in my mind about religion and everything made sense when I first, uh, encountered, uh, you know, an organized, systematic, theoretical model of uh, both human morphology and human behavior. Um, so chimpanzees really appealed to me because they uh, were so like us physically, uh, behaved a lot like us as well. But of course, you know, there are several million years that separate us from the common ancestor. Anyway, to get back to your question about the gorilla, I, um, uh, you know, just from that world, I, I, I met a, uh, a woman that ran a sanctuary um, in, uh, in, in very south in, in Miami, Hialeah, I believe. Um, at Monkey Jungle, and they had one gorilla there that had been there for you know 25 years. I think he was 29 years old when I first started working with him, and I was at the time you know finishing school and I needed uh, a thesis. I was writing a thesis project uh, for my you know honors thesis, and uh, I thought it would be a good idea because he was all alone. He was one of the very few singly housed gorillas in the U.S. at the time, and he had a lot of sort of abnormal behavioral traits because of that. He was isolated from other gorillas. He, when he was little, he was, uh, raised in a circus and they pulled his teeth out and, you know, quite a difficult, cruel existence that he'd had. Um, then I thought that, you know, it would be interesting to interact with him, try to enrich his life somehow. And, uh, I had this strange idea of, uh, giving him, uh, music therapy to encourage him to be more active in his, uh, in his, uh, concrete and steel sort of cage. And um, I don't think that was very successful as a, as a project, as a product that he did seem to like the three tenors. Um, <laughs> it probably irritated him more than anything else. But uh, I had one, I had women uh, at the, they worked in a nursing home and they were music therapists by training and they would actually sort of sit in front of his cage and sing to him. Um, so he, all, he had a lot of interesting stimulation. Wait, so in the book you say you played the three tenors and Sinatra. Sinatra, you yeah. You didn't care for Sinatra that much? Um, I don't, I don't think it was. I don't think he was into Sinatra. No. Okay. Um, must have must have been the uh, the arrangements. Yes, it could have been something like that. And then, um, and he, you know, I just kind of struck up a friendship with him. Really, I mean, I, I had such close uh, contact with him, and he, you know, I would play chase with him and tickle his toes. And, and you were uh, not in the. I was. I didn't, certainly didn't go in the enclosure. Right. No, but he would put his, dangerous. you know, put his big feet out, his toes th- through the bars, and you know, I would tickle him, and he would laugh and. Um, it was a very, um, you how know, are you sure he was actually laughing? Well, gorillas have, they cert- they have a, a laughter expression. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't sound much like ours. Sort of very guttural, uh, heaving. <laughs> they, they, you know, they, their shoulders go up and down. Um, but that's the only, the only time they do it is when you either tickle them 
um, or you're chasing with them and they're really excited. Or if you slip um, on a banana peel and they see. Mm, I don't think they had that type of okay, humor, actually, right. no. But uh, he certainly is t- he was ticklish. But mm-hmm. uh, so that's how I ended up uh, working with King. And he's since then, uh, the good news is that he's actually they've, they've created a, a large sort of island environment for him. So although he's still alone, he's close to 40 years old now. Um, he has you know a very lush, uh, mm-hmm. uh, more naturalistic type of surroundings that. Uh, he, he spends his days. So when was the last time you saw him? Not since then. I mean, okay. I, I was uh, probably 21. I was just wondering time. if he might even recognize you. I doubt it. Yeah. I, I don't know. Who knows? It's yeah. uh, you know, it's very difficult to tap into things like autobiographical memory right. with uh, with uh, nonverbal primates. Right. Like but you tickled him, and uh, you seem to get an actual kind of laugh response. And you spend the rest of that chapter talking about the researcher who was convinced that if you tickle rats, they right. will laugh. Right. So Jak Ponsep is the guy that's done that work, and he uh, has been building this case that um, not a sense of humor, but laughter uh, has very deep uh, phylogenetic origins. Um, and we find it even in rats, which are very distantly related to human beings, of course. Uh, so he did. he's done controlled research where he... Um, looks at their sort of ultrasonic vocalizations when you uh, interact with them physically, again, tickling them, basically, um, or playing with them, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, touching the back, the, the nape of their neck, you know, certain areas that they're very sensitive, uh, and when they're wrestling with each other. And only when they're these sort of uh, very pleasurable sort of social interactions do they, produ- do they, do they produce this sound. Um, whether it's a direct analogy to human laughter uh, is a little bit controversial, I think. And he had a very difficult time um, making the argument or people believing him, at least, that it's the same thing as laughter or that they're, they're really laughing. But there is a specific response a very specific to response, that yes. tickling of the yes. sensitive area. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, it's some great – one of the things that he found is that uh, if you tickle a rat um, – the that rat will pursue your hand uh, over another person's hand that hasn't interacted with them interacted with them positively like that, um, and they also like to interact with other rats that they've that they produce these sounds with that they've produced these sounds with in the past. So adult rats that they've wrestled with, for example, they, the juvenile rats will pursue further interactions with them over ones that they didn't have that they didn't make that vocalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think it is about? Uh, this subject matter. I mean, the, a lot of the book is about human sexuality, but not all of it. Some of it's just about the uh, the the quirks, the, the qualities that make us human, and that maybe are shared by other species that we're not really appreciative of. What right. do you think it was that really attracted you to this material that you wanted to spend so much time writing about it? Well, most of my my professional academic research is in the area of social cognition. Um, and the big question from an evolutionary perspective is whether we are the only species that um, can think about others' thoughts and also can think about our own thoughts. It's what's called a theory of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, can we Do we theorize about the abstract, the sort of hypothetical mental states of our, both ourselves and of other people? Um, and so that to me is the, the common denominator sort of stream, streaming throughout this book. I think it had dramatic effects. The evolution of this theory of mind mechanism would have had dramatic effects, for example, with uh, both the way that we uh, interpret human sexuality and the way that we behave sexually. I mean, if you think about um, 
the difference between copulation in other species and copulation in human beings. Um, with other species, it's fast. I mean, it's, you know, in a couple of seconds, it's over, basically. Human beings have, you know, they, they copulate other species. We copulate too, but it oftentimes turns into a, a lovemaking sort of session where we're really sort of taking the perspective of the person that we're having sex with. Um, and that's where all these, you know, really complicated sort of moral issues of consent um, and, uh, uh, you know, making people comfortable sexually when you're, when you're uh, having intercourse with them. All these things are evolutionarily novel to our species, I believe. Um, so, so I think that theory of mind, uh, is a, is a big part of all these essays. Maybe not every single one, but, but most of them. Um, but it also, and I think it's a very good thing that we began to be able to take the perspective, the rich psychological perspective of other people. Um, because, you know, I'm sitting here with you and, you know, I could, you're nodding your, you're, you know, you're nodding your head and I can't literally see what you're thinking, but I have a, you know, pretty good sense that what's going through your head at this point. Um, but if I didn't have a theory of mind, you'd just be a body sort of moving about in different ways. And I couldn't really make a lot of inferences about, you know, how I'm coming across or what, you know, whether or not you're understanding what I'm saying. And so it was a very good thing, the evolution of theory of mind for our species. But it also came with some dark sides, too. Um, you know, the chapter in the book on suicide, I believe. Right. Suicide um, suicide uh, that is initiated by other people's appraisals of us. Um or other organisms appraisals of us is something I think that is completely uh, unique to human beings uh, in the animal kingdom. That's not to say that other species don't uh, sometimes engage in self-sacrificial behaviors and uh, it looks like suicide, but other species uh, typically will... Uh, it has to do with parasite transmission, you know, bumblebees going off to die in a flower metal because they're infected. They don't want to infect, infect the rest of the rest of their community. Um, not that they don't want to. It's just a heuristic that they've sort of evolved. Right. But for us, it's, you know, oftentimes this sort of intense shame, depression, all these really negative self-evaluative emotions requires a theory of mind because it, it's it's basically taking the perspective of others who are evaluating us and it's very painful. Um, so it wasn't all good, and you know, there's there's a dark there are dark parts to the book too, um, that uh, show sort of the 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 significant hurdles that we've run into, the unique uh, evolutionary hurdles that we've run into as a species. Do you think that propensity to suicide is the equivalent of, say, uh, our um, vulnerability to malaria? I mean, to sickle cell disease in our attempts to fight off malaria by developing a sickle cell gene. Mm -hmm. So the suicide is an unfortunate artifact of the theory of mind. Um, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't know the answer to that question, actually. I mean, I, I can, I can sort of speculate. And I, I do think that the, uh, the, the, the suicide as adaptation model, which basically argues that, um, uh, Many people who kill themselves do so because they perceive themselves either correctly or incorrectly as being a burden to their biological kin. So removing yourself has this sort of surprising effect from just a sort of cold-hearted uh, natural selection point of view. Has the has the strange effect of uh, uh, increasing your genetic fitness because your 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 biological relatives actually um, are hampered by your physical existence, either taking care of you somehow. Um, or you're somehow interfering with their reproductive success. You know, maybe you've ruined the family's name, you know, to sort of mire the, the family's reputation. You know, that's the sort of only saving grace to forgive the rest of the family. Um, so I, I think that the there's an articulation between um, these 
you know, mechanical sort of uh, uh, biologically adaptive selection factors. There's an articulation with from with that and theory of mind. Um, it's the two things that go together that cause you know real problems in that sense. Mm-hmm. Well, despite our uh, our drift here toward the end of our conversation into uh, Arthur Miller plays, yeah, uh, uh, the book is really a lot of fun. Most of the uh, most of the material in it is uh, it's pretty light. Really, it's light. It's enlightening, and uh, it's written in a a very engaging style. It, there's a lot of uh, a lot of funny stuff in there too. So I I really recommend it. Jesse Berry, great to talk to you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. Jesse Baring's book, Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That?, is available through that free audible.com audiobook offer I told you about at the beginning of the podcast. Just go to www.audible.com slash cyan. To hear a clip from the book, read by Jesse himself, go to his website, jessebaring.com. Jesse's new book, Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, comes out in October. It's available for pre-order now at the usual suspect sites. We'll be back right after this word from Carrie Smith at The Nature Podcast. This week, the oldest genome ever sequenced, how elephants evolved from tree-eaters to grass-eaters, and why humans are so good at playing baseball. Just go to www.nature.com slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, and check out the collection of Scientific American eBooks available for Kindle, The Endangered Nook, and iBooks. You can find them by going to our website and clicking on Products on the right near the top, and then on Scientific American eBooks. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>